Welcome to the New Books Network. Welcome back to New Books in East Asian Studies, a podcast on the New Books Network. My name is Sarah Bramau Ramos, and I am one of the hosts on the channel. And I recently spoke with Arnab Ghosh about his new book, Making It Count Statistics and Statecraft in the Early People's Republic of China. This came out in 2020 with Princeton University Press. And this is a really fascinating book about statistics in 1950s China. And that may initially seem maybe a little niche and maybe even a little distant if you don't also happen to work on modern China. But this book is, by exploring statistics, exploring something that feels immensely relevant in this pandemic, mid-pandemic, post-pandemic world. Because to quote from the introduction, Statistics are rarely only about numbers and their truth claims. They exist at the crossroads where mathematical certainty encounters the messiness of quantifying and categorizing the inherently imprecise characteristics of human existence and activity. In other words, to pick up on something that Arnab says in our conversation, how we count is deeply linked to what we count and what we decide to count. And this book explores just this. This book looks at how, after 1949, the People's Republic of China dealt with the problem of statistics, how they built a centralized statistical system, what they decided to count, and how they tried to count it. This book follows how the PRC tried on different modes and kinds of statistics. And as is explored in the book, You see Chinese statisticians borrowing and learning not only from Soviet statisticians, as you might expect, but from Indian statisticians as well. And so because of this, this book is also really important from the point of view of global science in the 1950s and the history of scientific innovations and exchanges as well, because the exchange the PRC has with India in particular, something that is discussed in the last part of the book, This is the first major scientific exchange that the PRC has with another country in the global south. And this is something that Arnab talks about in our conversation, but I'll just mark it here as a really important moment that this book looks at. And I should also add that this is a fascinating book because it is about statisticians. This book is built on documents, archives, memoirs, oral histories, and newspaper reports produced by statisticians and statistical bureaus. So this really is a story from their perspective. And this comes through so clearly through the book. You get a real, real sense of their perspective, who these men are and what drives them, their excitement over a new statistical approach that promises to be comprehensive and all-encompassing, their frustration over useless, irrelevant tables, And this is a frustration which, if you have ever had to fill out a government form, you will recognize. So this is a necessary read for anyone who works on or who is interested in modern China, the 1950s, statistics. If you're interested in reading about and thinking with competing ways of knowing and understanding the world. And for all that this is about a very different time and place, there is so much here from complaints about duplicated reports ineffective reporting systems, competing ideologies about modes of counting and notions about what should be counted and how to count it, all of this will be immediately recognizable. And it's deeply relevant, even frighteningly so, today. 
So with this, I hope you seek the book out and I hope you enjoy the conversation that follows. I'm here today with Aronov Ghosh to talk about his new book, Making It Count, Statistics and Statecraft in the Early People's Republic of China. Welcome to New Books in East Asian Studies, and thank you for taking the time and for navigating time zones to speak with me today. Oh, thank you. Thank you, Sarah. Delighted to be here. Really excited to get to be part of the New Books um, sort of sequence of discussions. Of course. So we will begin, as is tradition on the channel, with your beginning. So could you say a few words about how you came to the field? How did you come to work on Chinese history and modern Chinese history in particular? Uh, so I guess I came to Chinese history uh, partly because of uh, the influence of uh, a professor I had in college. Uh, but it turns out that uh, it, it was a slightly long, and I, I wouldn't call it torturous road, but it was a protracted uh, road to get to modern Chinese history because the professor who inspired me in college uh, was actually a historian of Song China. And a lot of the classes I took uh, on Chinese history in college ended up naturally being on on the Song, uh, Song you know Song Ming, yeah, Song Yuan Ming, and so on. Um, so so the initial exposure to Chinese history I think uh, was in college, but then the interest in modern China sort of evolved over time. It actually evolved afterwards after I graduated from college. I was working in DC on something completely unrelated to China that I began to read more uh, modern Chinese history as well. And then became interested in in questions that had to do with modern China. Uh, I should I should add the sort of intellectually or sort of the way you know it's often a certain kind of sort of puzzle that attracts us to to study something. And for me, what was sort of interesting about Chinese history, which was true uh, as much for the courses I took in college, but then also then I think uh, for what motivates a lot of the kinds of research that I'm interested in today, uh, is this sort of the sense that I had of how distinct. Uh, Chinese history appeared to me as someone who'd grown up in India, had a had a sort of reasonable degree of familiarity with Indian history, and then had some familiarity with European history and, and global history, and so on. Uh, and what was distinct was not, you know, not 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 something uh, that not some sort of cultural essentialization, but more sort of the the role and nature of the state throughout Chinese history. And again, not so much as the state itself and how it how it had changed across history but the way in which the idea of the centrality of the state figured in the minds of uh, Chinese elite, especially in the 19th and 20th century. I mean, indeed throughout, but as my interest evolved, I became particularly interested in this idea uh, in terms of how it how it affected the ways in which Chinese elites thought about the state and then, of course, thought about the nation and the relationship between the state and the nation. And that was really distinct for me. It's sort of a, a kind of continuity that you can trace that is very different, at least from... Uh, what the way in which Indian history would be talked about. So that was, I think, intellectually what was really interesting and exciting to, tr to try and understand. Again, not understand why it happened, but more in terms of what the implications of uh, that kind of long, continuous thinking about the state uh, might mean for, say, 20th century China uh, and even for China today. Very cool. So I can imagine that the journey from Song China to the 1950s, which is really what this book is about was quite a long one, but some of the things you mentioned there, you know, Chinese intellectuals thinking about the state, the role of the state, all of those sort of um, core themes seem very germane in this book in particular. 
Yeah, no, I think that's absolutely true. And and in some ways, you know, if you took look at song history and one of the major sort of uh, themes in song history is really the um, the reemergence or, or the emergence of neo-Confucianism, the reemergence of Confucian-inspired ideas that then directly feed into uh, reorganization of, uh, of state and society in, in ways that you can then trace through the Ming into the Qing uh, and indeed into the 20th century. So in that sense, perhaps some of these ideas about thinking about the state and statecraft were sown in college itself um but in terms of encountering sort of in terms of the 1950s and why that became in the end uh what i worked on uh, during the phd i think part of it was also just the at that time this is sort of the late you know 10 15 years ago uh the relative novelty of uh, 1950s as history it's still relatively novel but it was significantly more novel 15 years ago uh and it really seemed like we knew so little about um the 1950s uh, and that automatically became something that I think I became attracted to, um, much more so than than re- sort of the, the nationalist period of Republican China, which I felt was uh, uh, sort of terrain that had been fairly well trodden uh, by then. Perfect. So let's keep that the you know the newness of the 1950s, that idea as we transition into talking and diving into your book itself, making it count. So this book is, as the title suggests, all about statistics in the early People's Republic of China. And as we've sort of said, it really focuses on the 1950s. So here you're charting how after 1949, the People's Republic of China dealt with the problem of statistics, how they built a centralized statistical system, and throughout what kinds of statistics they were embracing, what they thought statistics was, what they wanted statistics to be, and this is something that's being, you know, constantly debated and revised. So your book really follows this process as first Soviet-inspired methods of exhaustive enumeration are adopted with great enthusiasm, and then the problems and frustrations that arise. And then you turn to look at what alternatives are sought, focusing in particular on exchanges with Indian statisticians, and then more ethnog- uh, how more ethnographically informed methods were turned to during the Great Leap Forward. And sort of like a central part of the book, as I've sort of tried to hint at here, is there for the question of what statistics is and, you know, intimately connected with this, what the relationship is between various kinds of statistics and the different, you know, views of social reality that statistics tries to capture. And one thing that this book as a whole really powerfully does is to destabilize the idea that there is just one statistics, because there are at least three different methodological approaches to to statistics that we see Chinese statisticians using or considering here. So you have the exhaustive, the kind done by the Soviet Union, the stochastic, what Indian statisticians were championing, the ethnographic, Mao's favorite approach, And then these three approaches stand in, of course, opposition to what the Chinese statisticians call bourgeois statistics, statistics done in the West, which is mathematical statistics. And we're going to talk about all these different parts of the book. But before we get there, I was wondering if you could build on something that you just sort of started hinting at, which is where this book fits in terms of PRC history. Because, you know, in terms of the scholarship that this book is engaging with, as listeners can probably tell, You are, of course, speaking to a number of different fields here, and you're bringing concerns from the history of science and the history of statistics, not to mention a sort of transnational approach to modern Chinese history. So could you situate this book within this scholarship? Where does the book fit within the field? 
And where are you hoping to bring the conversation about the early PRC with your work? So I think uh, this is uh, two two things. I guess I would I would highlight here uh, in terms of how the book uh, might be in dialogue with um, PRC history as a field. The first is um, I think something that we perhaps need to pay more attention to, which is, uh, as, I, as I point out in the introduction, um, sort of a, to look at sort of the, the more formal and institutional elements of the early PRC state. Um, there is, for I think very understandable reasons, um, a lot of the scholarship, even a lot of the contemporary reportage from the 1950s, focused tremendously on the the whole range of campaigns, you know, starting very much with land reform at the very beginning and moving on all the way through to the greatly forward, uh, the, 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 these are sort of the two major campaigns that bookend the decade. Uh, there's an emphasis on understanding the nature of these campaigns and how they operated and the kinds of impact they had uh, on Chinese society, on Chinese economy, on Chinese culture, and so on. And of course, that is uh, a hugely important and completely justified focus to have. Uh, but part of what I'm trying to do with the book is to also make the case for looking at much more formal institutional kinds of changes that were put in place that don't always follow necessarily the the temporal structure of, say, the campaigns or the organizational structure of the campaigns, uh, but also have a fairly lasting impact because obviously they're constantly, they're, they're, they're affected by and there's sort of a mutual uh, relationship here in terms of how each affects the other. So, so in, in terms of PRC history, I think it's an attempt to go back and look at sort of the formal structure of the state and understand how they were operating. And part of that, I think, is also, therefore, to take seriously what, uh, what, what this early moment of state building was like, because I think there is uh, there has been all along and there are, there are periods when, when the sentiment, I think, becomes extremely uh, relatively strong, but it's sort of it's, it's present throughout, which is that we, we tend to think of this as a, an ideologically charged time and, and a time of excess and a time of uh, certain kinds of sort of uh, real repression as far as the common people are concerned. Uh, and, to, you know, in certain cases, that's certainly that, that's that's true. But I think it, again, misses the point that there were a lot of people who were deeply invested in building a new society and in, in fundamentally restructuring um, their economy uh, with with uh, a, a really ambitious and very progressive uh, goal in mind. And I think in order to understand uh, a lot of that, we have to really focus on uh, these kinds of sort of institutions and understand the ways in which they operated, not just purely... Uh, organizationally, but in terms of the ideas that were fueling them uh, and the ways in which those ideas then interacted with uh, uh, things that were happening on the ground. So that's sort of one one broad area of sort of, I'm hoping that we'll see more, more works like these also um, in the future. And that'll help, I think, to bring the campaigns and then this sort of these, these kinds of works that focus on uh, the formal structure of the state, integrated dialogue with each other. Uh, the, the second area I think where this this book is important I think is that um, it's uh, you, you know when we think about statistics and we, we think about the 1950s uh, even someone who has a has only a passing uh, awareness of, of modern Chinese history will immediately gravitate towards the greatly forward and even more so the famine that resulted uh, out of the greatly forward so there is a sort of uh, uh, a demographic story to the 1950s that is linked to chaos and failure and massive uh, massive loss of life. Uh, and I think that in some ways, again, clouds our understanding of what was actually a very dynamic period in Chinese history. Uh, 
and looking at sort of an earlier period and not um, in some ways uh, holding ourselves hostage in some ways to what we know happens later on. Because, I mean, from our vantage point, we, of course, know that uh, the Great Leap Forward is going to happen and uh, there's going to be a massive famine in the late 1950s. But to take seriously the kinds of um, activities, the kinds of goals, the kinds of ambitions that Chinese statisticians had, Chinese planners had, I think, helps us understand a much more dynamic process. And we then see the greatly forward, not necessarily as some kind of obvious outcome of certain policies, uh, certain tendencies that were part of the Chinese state. Perhaps, you know, if you want to go even more, be more extreme. So this was bound to happen because of certain aspects of Maoism or something like that. But rather to recognize the greatly forward also as a particularly contingent outcome uh, that has to be then placed in a longer trajectory of, uh, you know, debate, discussion, contestation over uh, statistics and planning. So there are these two 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 as well, actually I'll mention a third. So I've mentioned two. A third one that I think is 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 uh, also relevant is that you know there's been there's it's it's an old debate. It keeps coming up. There's a certain degree of uh, relevance that it enjoys because as historians we always fixate on well is this a moment of rupture? Is there continuity? What's going on? And 1949 is 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 ripe for this kind of uh, discussion, right? Because there was such a a self-proclaimed attempt to be different from the Chinese communists. When they came to power, they were so conscious in trying to distinguish what they were doing uh, from what had preceded them, what had preceded uh, uh, under the nationalists. Uh, so there's this sort of this debate about, well, how much, what, what kinds of continuities can you, can you trace? Where are the points of rupture and so on? So in that sense, I think in the past 10, 15 years, a range of works that emerged actually that had stressed uh, the, the various ways in which you can trace continuities. Uh, and I, of course, this is also reacting to an earlier moment, I guess, which was all about pointing out ruptures. Uh, so part of the, so the book feeds uh, is in dialogue with some of that uh, that kind of discussion, but it, it, it's not sort of. Uh, the, I guess what what I would say the book is trying to do is to point to the fact that there can be ruptures and continuities. It's important to focus on what precisely we are looking at, whether it's in terms of of, of uh, uh, a particular discipline or a particular. Um, uh, uh, state, um, a set of state practices like statistics, uh, or whether it's um, you know something something more about actual political control or political changes. We need to focus on what what uh, the the actual place at which it's taking where it where it sort of unfolds, as well as as the nature of what it is. So in in the case of statistics, you can actually see a very strong break that does emerge, as you were pointing out, in terms of this this move to exhaustive enumeration. But it's not in 1949 that you see this break, really. It's actually a little later. So then it becomes also a question of how do we actually, how do you, how do you actually recognize where the rupture is and where the continuities are? Absolutely. And you mentioned there the 1949 break, um, which is sort of gesturing, um, taking us into chapter two of the book, which sort of looks at this early period. And as you've just said, this this part of the book um, really shows that it is not, as you just pointed out. A very clean break, but a series of breaks. It's a, I think you call it a series of ruptures that sort of take us through the early 1950s. It's not 1949, everything changes, things change gradually over this period. Um, but picking up on something that you mentioned um, when you're talking about sort of the first intervention that this is making, um, and thinking about, you know, the, the, statistics and statisticians and, you know, the people who are um, bringing this sort of new idea of, of statistics to China 
and then, you know, in turn, um, engaging with the Chinese state. Um, I wanted to talk a little bit about the statisticians, um, because, you know, this idea, the questioning that you're bringing here to what statistics is, um, I think is so fundamental in this book because of the sources that you use. So your book uses unpublished documents, letters, memoirs, oral histories, and other materials, but just about everything that you're dealing with um, was produced by statisticians and statistical bureaus. So this book has an interesting focus because you're telling the story about statistics, as you say in the book, from the inside out, not from the perspective of political leaders or other outside figures. So could you say a few words about the sources and this approach? Did you go into the archives, into your research for this book, looking for statisticians? Or how did you sort of come with this, come up with this focus? Uh, so so I, I, the, the focus really emerged in the archives in as much as at the, in the early stages uh, when I was sort of um, trying to draw up a prospectus and a research plan and apply for for grants so that I could go out and do do archival research in China I my 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 idea at that time was really to use the 1953 census of China which is you know which is recognized as the first modern census in Chinese history as sort of my major case study I thought I would focus on I would try and look for materials on the census and use the census then as a way of then understanding what was going on in the larger world of of statistics, uh, and in this, in some ways, I think reflects uh, one of the other broader conceptions that we have. I think when we think about statistics, we tend to gravitate towards demographic data. We tend to think about the census and the ways in which we count people, uh, and that was certainly my uh, my early um, sort of plan as well. Uh, but that changed significantly in the archives uh, itself because as I was collecting materials, as I was encountering a range of materials. Uh, well, initially, I tried to find material on, materials on the 1953 census, and I very quickly discovered this is primarily at the Beijing Municipal Archives, where I did um, uh, a fair amount of research for this book, um, that I could find uh, guidelines that outlined how the census should be conducted, and then I could find a lot of uh, results. But I found very little material in between that actually talked about how the census was indeed conducted. So there was sort of a gaping hole in the middle, and this we can this is a bit of a, a sidebar, but we can we can go into it if you want later on in terms of what what you know the popular perception, not popular the the expert perception in 1954 was when the results were declared, because there was a sense that uh, there was a degree of of, of skepticism uh, amongst China China scholars that the census wasn't really conducted, and I I was aware of the skepticism uh, and and not encountering or failing to find a lot of materials that talked about process, that talked about, uh, you know, the kinds of difficulties that might be encountered when they went out to collect the data, how they processed it, how they collated it, definitely made me more sympathetic to the to the the, the, the skeptics from the 1950s. So in as much as I was, dis- I was discovering an absence uh, and, and, uh, and sort of recognizing that perhaps the census and demographic statistics were not really the driving... Uh, or, or the real area of focus for uh, Chinese China statisticians in the 1950s, I was being overwhelmed by other kinds of material, and a lot of this material then ends up uh, being what the you know the book draws upon, which had to do with much more fundamental questions about uh, you know 
what what is statistics? How should we define it? Is it a natural science? Is it a social science? And I sort of quickly got sort of uh, wrapped up in these kinds of debates and then looked and realized that the way in which they were thinking of statistics was actually quite different from uh, a narrow focus on, on just counting people. Uh, so, so it was, uh, to, to answer your question, it really was through archival discovery. Well, the, the discovery of absence and the discovery of something else, the presence of something else, I guess, that really helped shape the book and made me realize how important uh, these, these definition, definitional issues became and how fundamental uh, the very nature of statistics was to the conception of the Chinese state at this time. Perfect. So that's a great segue into, as we've sort of been dancing around, part one of the book, which is really where questions of definition and what statistics is um, really come to the fore. So let's follow that. So part one, a statistical revolution. Um, part one of the book consists of three chapters, chapters two, three, and four. And as a whole, you know, they explore statistics in the early, early People's Republic. And as you've touched on, you're really highlighting what is new about statistics after 1949. Not that things change in 1949, but, you know, after that period. So chapter two looks at early statistical work in Northeast China um, and the work done by the Northeast Statistical Bureau. And this is really sort of important and foundational because it then forms the basis for other statistical work in China. And chapter three builds on this, looking at the theoretical and ideological justification for the statistical work in this period, and in particular, how important Soviet knowledge and Soviet statistical experts and advisors were in shaping statistics. And these two chapters in particular sort of paint a very vivid picture of the kind of statistics, the new type of statistical work that China was adopting, and which we've sort of been hinting around, uh, which is sort of socialist statistics. So could you break this down for us? What is this new type of statistical work and what do we need to know about it? Um, and in particular, exhaustive enumeration to understand what is going on in this part of the book. Mm -hmm. so, I, so the first point I think that, that one, one should make is that, as you, I think, rightly pointed out, the importance in the Northeast here is quite interesting because partly what we see, um, and partly what I, I try and uh, explain in the book, is that a lot of the changes in statistics were actually put in, were sort of, they began to practice those changes before they actually then ended up theorizing and explaining why it is, why is it that they were doing things the way they were doing them. So in some ways, I think this is, again, an interesting way to think about that question of rupture and continuity in terms of what is the relationship between theory and praxis. Uh, and in the case of statistics, as I discovered uh, in the Northeast, which uh, uh, the, the, the communists were able to control the Northeast actually well before the establishment of the PRC in October of 1949, they were actually in control of parts of, of the Northeast in 1948 itself. So, so the, and, and the Northeast, because of uh, its particular history as um, uh, under, under Japanese control in the, in the decades immediately preceding, had actually already... Uh, a significant concentration of industry uh, in China. So Shanghai is one major in, uh, uh, concentration of uh, industry at this time, and the other was in the Northeast. And the Japanese had been doing a fair amount of, um, of um, statistical work themselves. This is something that actually Prasenjit Duara uh, draws upon heavily in his work um, as well, the, the, the records of the Nantetsu, for instance. Um, so in some ways, there was uh, a large industrial sector that needed to be mapped and that needed then to be uh, uh, 
sort of brought in brought in line with uh, nation building as as the PRC was established after 1949. Uh, but in order to do so, uh, what what the Chinese statisticians who uh, who were put in charge of the Northeast, in particular the person I spend a fair amount of time uh, talking about, uh, a gentleman by the name of Wang Sehua, he um, he was relying heavily upon advice from. Uh, Soviet statistical experts. And this is at a time, again, when the relationship between the Soviet Union and China was extremely close. Um, in very simple terms, the, the Chinese leadership saw the Soviet Union uh, essentially as a success story that could be emulated, a, 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 a country that had rapidly industrialized, ha having been largely agrarian only a few decades earlier, had rapidly industrialized and become a modern industrial economy uh, that had played a huge role in, in the Allied victory in World War II, and now was, as you know, in 1949, as the Cold War is, is increasingly becoming a reality, uh, what, what provided a symbol of, uh, of, of, of real sort of, um, not a symbol, but a, um, uh, an alternative to, to sort of the West in terms of how uh, a future society could be and a future economy could be. Uh, so in that context, uh, the experiences of the Soviet Union were were taken very seriously. They were seen in some ways, to put it even more bluntly, as as what what lay in China's future. And in in the realm of statistics, uh, how this played out was that you saw a uh, tremendous reliance on uh, counting everything exhaustively. What this basically meant was that if you were collecting statistical data. The only way to collect reliable data was to make sure that you were conducting a census of whatever it is you were counting. So if it was industrial production, you had to essentially account for every unit of whatever the industrial good was that was being produced. If it was agricultural yield, you had to make sure that you were actually accounting for all of the yield. Um, and this was set up in contradistinction to other kinds of um, of practices uh, of collection, for instance, as I outline in the introduction, also in the way and the, the and what you mentioned, uh, you could also collect data uh, in sort of an ethnographic mode, which is where you were sampling, but you were sampling based on your own personal um, sort of a range of sort of personal choices you were making based on uh, maybe your claims to familiarity with a particular region, uh, and then you would you would exhaustively study. A small section of that large of, of any larger reality, and then extrapolate based on your findings to claim some kind of universal knowledge. Uh, and then the other method, which was uh, really uh, in in the late forties, really not even on the horizon for for a lot of countries, was to do some kind of mathematically based, probability based uh, sampling, uh, essentially randomized sampling. Uh, but what they got from Soviet experts at this time was that the real, the, the right way to count, uh, the only sort of objective, scientific, comprehensive, complete way to count is to count exhaustively. Um, and this is sort of partly what I traced then in that uh, in that first chapter to try and uh, try and understand how the ways in which the institutions, uh, what, what kinds of institutions were set up, what kinds of uh, how many personnel were, were employed, and then the fact that by 1951 or 52. Uh, what the Northeast, what had been achieved in the Northeast, was seen as uh, as being uh, very successful. So that then it became a model uh, for uh, expansion nationwide as discussions began about building a national statistical apparatus. Um, and and this is sort of um, what uh, again at the national level too. It's it's a similar kind of Soviet influence that became hugely important, which again stressed a unified system entirely dependent on setting up uh, uh, 
at every level structures that allowed you to count exhaustively. Perfect. And something you mentioned here, which sort of goes to the idea of, you know, counting everything, um, is that in this socialist statistics, the idea is that everything can be counted. You sort of point this out as one explanation why this is this model, this way of doing statistics is so persuasive because it's the promise that um, this this kind of statistics, unlike mathematical statistics, which you know assumes that counting generates errors and aims to control errors, the promise of social statistics is the elimination of errors. The idea that this will be a comprehensive system, there's no need to generate, there's no need to calculate for errors. There are none. Uh, I thought this was particularly interesting in sort of explaining at least part of why this system appealed so much, especially at this period of time. Absolutely. And I think the way the way to think about this is if you're in a, in a relatively controlled environment, so say you're in, in a school and you need to find out how many students there are in the school, it's actually fairly easy to do. You can, you can have every um, uh, you you know you can identify a student in every class, or you can have the, a teacher in every class. Count how many students they have, report that to the principal, and you you sum that up, and you have a, a fairly accurate sense of of the number of uh, students there is. And you can so this is a this would be a mode of exhaustive enumeration, and it would succeed because it's a you know it's a fairly localized and small number of of, of people that you're enumerating, uh, and and it's precisely then this notion that you have there is there is no chance that there's going to be an error. This is absolute and perfect knowledge, and that's that's really the attraction. Of course, it becomes much much more complicated the more as you start sort of expanding the scale of what you're counting, and also once you start counting different kinds of things, not just you know things that you can easily isolate and and convert into into simple units. Um, but I think there's, as I point out, there's also a much more deep rooted logic behind this, and it had to do with precisely an understanding of. Uh, how should one ascertain social reality? Uh, is there a correct way to even begin to ascertain social reality? Uh, and here, uh, this is where the justification that you know, once you had set up a structure that really depended, that 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 really functioned on the basis of exhaustive enumeration, what followed in the early fifties was an engagement with some of the sort of the theoretical ideas behind why this made sense. Uh, and here, uh, Chinese statisticians, in dialogue with and drawing upon debates in the Soviet Union. Uh, really made this very strong distinction, uh, a definitional distinction, where they said statistics is a social science, it's not a natural science. And what this meant was that statistics really took as its object the study of society, counting of social phenomena only, and not, therefore, it wasn't interested in trying to um, operate in the, in, the world of, in the natural world, so dealing with the natural sciences, or, uh, you know, so, or, or say, interested in sort of the ways in which space could be counted, sort of extra extraterrestrial kinds of uh, investigations, uh, but only the social world. And the reason why this distinction was important was because they said, we have to recognize that the laws as they operate in the social world are different from the ways in which they operate in the natural world. Where are they getting this from? They're getting this from a fairly, we can say, a fairly reductive reading of uh, what Marxist teleological progression should be like. I mean, if you, if you boil down... Um, what they were perhaps getting from uh, from a lot of, uh, again, it's not what, what they were getting from Marx directly. It's, you know, mediated again through debates in the Soviet Union and then their own understanding of some of, uh, uh, some, some of these debates. In essence was that, well, you know, we know how history unfolds. We know that we are going to go, we are in, in, in sort of a, a stage that we, of, of say, 
a certain kind of capitalist stage and we're trying to transition into socialism and from socialism eventually you're going to end up in communism where the state itself will disappear there really is no uncertainty to any of this so if we recognize that there is no uncertainty then how can we employ uh, modes of counting methods of counting that fundamentally depend upon uncertainty and probability so they said on that basis we cannot therefore use any kind of mathematical uh, statistical approach that relies on probability. And this goes back to what you said earlier on, which is this notion of error uh, and, and, and how do you control for error? Because in their understanding, the way you control for error is by counting everything. So you have a one is to one relationship with what that social reality is. What mathematical statistics and probabilistic methods would say is that, well, you can actually never achieve that. You will always have errors when you try and count, especially as you scale up to very large, large numbers, there will always be errors. There can be errors that are human in nature. There can be errors because of design or, or other reasons. So what you can do by, by using probabilistic methods is actually devise uh, tools, methodologies that give you a very sort of a very strong sense of what the range of that error is. So what they're dealing with on the mathematical side is not so much a one is to one notion of what reality is, but a, um, a probabilistic notion where we have a degree of confidence that this is what the social reality is like, give or take a little bit. And what we are really confident about is the extent of the give or take there. Uh, so you essentially end up having two very different approaches to how you even go about counting it and getting a sense of social reality. One says that, as you, as you I think earlier pointed out, that we can fully understand what social reality is and the other, and, and in order to do so, we have to count exhaustively. And then the other the other side of the, the the argument says that no matter how exhaustively you count and how successful you think your exhaustive count is, there will always be errors. Uh, therefore, if you actually use probabilistic methods, you can actually have a sense of what the error is, which an exhaustive enumeration cannot provide you. And therefore, probabilistic methods are indeed better. That sort of became the uh, the real divide. Perfect. And I think you're, you're, as you beautifully pointed out there, the divide is not just with, you know, it's not just on the level of methods. It really is with worldview and what statistics is being harnessed to count, right? It's a very um, much more, I suppose, meaningful difference um, than simply looking at, you know, just the tools um, or at least, you know, much more meaningful than staying on the level of tools. It is really worldview. Exactly. Um, these exactly. methods are differing on. So one simple Perfect. way to so, think about this. Sorry, I'm sorry. I can't be, I keep no, interrupting. No, no, go on. So just just a quick quick addendum. One, one simple way to think about this, really, and I and, and I've mentioned this in in some other writing about the book. Though not in, in this specific terminology does not appear in the book itself. Is or maybe it does in a footnote somewhere. Is this idea of how the the fact that what we want to count and how we count it are actually uh, deeply interlinked. Um, and, and indeed, you can frame it the other way also. How we count is deeply linked to what we count. Uh, and partly what I'm showing in the book is that uh, these, there's nothing universal about these questions. They're embedded in particular moments in history with the concerns, uh, the ideologies, uh, as you were saying, the specific worldviews of the actors who are trying to then uh, carry out certain, certain actions. Uh, so so to, to boil the, that distinction between socialist and uh, uh, sort of non-socialist statistics, you'd, think, you'd have to think about what the relationship between what we want to count is and how we want to count what we want to count. Perfect. And I think that, you know, you said 
you know, you're not sure if you used that language in the book. I think it's it's certainly in perhaps different words comes through very clearly in the ending of the book, um, in in particular. Uh, but before we get there, I just wanted to pause for a moment on chapter four, um, and this is sort of you know building on. Um, this sort of uh, the establishment of socialist statistics that you sort of outline in chapters two and three, um, but chapter four is to me, to my mind, really a really interesting chapter because you're sort of looking at um, consensus formation. You're looking at how statisticians come to adopt the this new idea of socialist statistics, um, and this is very much not a top down story. Uh, you take us through how the adoption of socialist statistics was negotiated. Um, and you point out that part of what is going on is a younger generation is pushing an older generation to the side. They're pushing an older generation of statisticians trained in Euro-American bourgeois statistics and often trained in Europe and America. Uh, they're pushing them out of the uh, academy or at least marginalizing and quieting them. So here in this chapter, you talk about textbooks, you talk about articles written in specialist journals and self-criticisms that statisticians wrote. And you actually open this chapter with a self-criticism. And I was wondering if you could say just a few words about these self-criticisms, because they're really interesting pieces of writing. They're very formulaic. They follow the same pattern, but they take the reader on a journey, really, from the writer initially thinking that Marxist-Leninist statistical theory was too simple, to the the writer then learning about statistics being a social science and then embracing it wholeheartedly. So could you just say a few words about these self-criticisms and what they show us about, you know, consensus formation? I think you're totally right. And they're actually, they are a genre in, in, in sort of PRC, um, if you were in PRC writing in some ways, because self-criticisms were, a, uh, were actually a mode of performing a, a certain kind of, um, sort of uh, what you might you know uh, what you might call function right the the ability to to recognize and turn your physically turn your body around but intellectually sort of turn yourself around and 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 uh, sort of recognize uh the truth and the wisdom uh of of a particular sort of set of ways in this case it would be of course marxism leninism uh, and then maoism gets added onto it um so, so there's a broader genre within which a whole range of intellectuals, but also uh, people from other walks of life, did write through the 50s, 60s, 70s, these kinds of self-criticisms uh, as a way of demonstrating um, their, um, uh, or not even demonstrating, it's actually as a way of performing, I guess, uh, a, a certain kind of um, rehabilitation. Uh, what's interesting is that uh, this genre then also finds a place when it comes to statistics and uh, and the ways in which you see who gets who is attacked who feels compelled in some ways to write these kinds of uh, self-criticisms and where they get written and and what uh, you know what the content of them is as you were suggesting which really goes uh, you know follows this again the, the the once you read a few of them you realize that there's a certain form, form formulaic sort of um, pattern to them but even within that it is sort of uh, pointing to the ways in which, was uh, if you so to be you know to be sort of prosopographical for a second, which you can see with most of these um, uh, people who write these self criticisms, they are people who are in what would otherwise be thought of as the prime of their um, academic or intellectual careers. They are in their fifties, 
40s, 50s, someone into their 60s, uh, who actually enjoyed perhaps real prominence before 1949 as major statisticians, perhaps as economists, as bankers, uh, or, or as professors, uh, and therefore had a large body of work that could be criticized in the 1950s. And of course, a lot of this body of work was operating in a milieu where this very strong distinction between statistics as a social science and statistics as a natural science didn't really exist. Uh, and that then becomes an opportunity for uh, a younger generation, but also a generation that's much more aligned with with the party itself to point to, to these earlier works as being fundamentally flawed because they were not making this distinction. So you see sort of this, and this process is part of the formula that is in these self-criticisms where they sort of speak to, speak about the, their earlier works and their inability to take Marxist uh, theory seriously, their inability to take statistics as a social science seriously, and at some point their their eyes are opened and they realize uh, the uh, the error of their ways, and so on. And of course, the the you know the underlying suspicion, as is, as is the case with a lot of these kinds of self criticisms, remains that to what extent is this really a, a an internal transformation, and to what extent is this really performative, that they are compelled to try and do this in order to at times save their careers or in order to sometimes avoid much, much more serious uh, kinds of uh, outcomes, uh, especially in the latter half of the 1950s, where you have a range of campaigns that are targeting intellectuals um, in particular. So um, so what's interesting is, of course, to then, as, you, as I think you rightly pointed out, is to see this as also as a process through which a certain kinds of consensus can emerge. So by targeting specific, very prominent statisticians, you can send signals in terms of how, what is the correct way to talk about statistics. And I think that is largely what happens through um, uh, the, the, the kinds of self-criticisms that someone like, like Jin Guobao writes, for instance, um, in, in 1956, if I remember correctly, or 57. Um, and he becomes then sort of a poster child in some ways for a larger category of statisticians who all need to, who all need to be exposed for, uh, for still adhering to, uh, to um, pre-49 modes of, uh, modes of sort of statistical analysis. So there is, there is this kind of consensus building that evolves through these debates, through uh, uh, self-criticism, criticisms and self-criticisms, I guess, because a lot of the self-criticisms are responding in some ways to criticisms, right, that, that have been printed, uh, which point, point to the failings of earlier textbooks and so on. Perfect. And so some of the things you touched on there, this consensus formation and the, the sort of the creation through this debate and discussion of, you know, a, a correct line. Um, we see these we see this coming up again as it relates to statistics in the second part of the book. Um, so we'll move us there. And this part of the book looks at statistics and practice. Um, so really what happens once the theoretical decisions that we've been sort of talking about so far were actually implemented? Um, so chapter five, the nature of statistical work, really, really highlights how messy this implementation was. Um, so you go through how a nas- uh, nationwide network of statistics offices at the provincial, city, and county levels were set up, and then what their tasks were. So how they um, collected statistics, ordered them, what research they did, and how they supplied information. And there are a number of key points here, and I'll just try to summarize some of the ones at least that stood out to me. Uh Um, As you point out that the system is complex, the numbers are messy, particularly when it comes to agricultural statistics. Um, There's a general push towards greater decentralization, but a continuing tension between decentralization and centralization. 
uh, the system as a whole incentivizes the overproduction of reports, and there's very you know little to none, little to no coordination between statistics and planning. And running through this chapter, there's a persistent, uh, very uh, problem remains of capacity building. The state is really struggling and not being able to train the number of statistical cadres that they need, which really comes up again in the next chapter, chapter six. And I think this is possibly my favorite chapter of the book because it opens up with what is probably, as you point out, a fictitious letter from a young statistical worker, which was published in the Principal Journal of Statistical Work. And this letter is just intimately familiar. It's filled with, you know, youthful pathos because the writer is unhappy with his work. He's unwilling to participate in statistical work. There's no future in it for him. Um, but he he's torn because he recognizes that the nation has put a lot of resources into training him. And this chapter revolves around this letter and points to the problems that the state is having in training and incentivizing statistical workers to ardently love statistical work. And one of the solutions, which I'll just highlight here, which then, you know, created other problems, was to uh, valorize the table. So to explain to the statistical worker in the journal, who is so unhappy that every time he completes a chart, he should be, he should feel like a peasant on his, you know, at a, on his field, looking at a, uh, a, a ear of wheat. So the table is his product uh, that the that he is contributing to the economy. Um, and as you point out, this probably added, uh, only added to China's problem of the overproduction of reports um, with this sort of uh, framing. Now, I really love these chapters and I'm going to urge listeners to seek them out, but in the interest of getting to part three of the book, I'm going to stop myself there, except to ask you if there's anything that you want to highlight or say about this middle part of the book. I think very, very briefly, I guess what I'd maybe amplify one or two things that you just said, uh, it's really to point out that what exhaustive enumeration, so this, this reliance on exhaustive enumeration did is that it, it required a very, very large uh, number of cadre. Uh, by, by the mid-50s, uh, the, the Stats Bureau was claiming that 200,000 full-time statisticians under their employ, probably many, many more part-time statisticians. Um, and what it did was it also created uh, way, way too much paperwork for them to actually process. If you're actually exhaustively counting everything, which, uh, you know, if you think about industrial production, but also agricultural production, but you're looking at public health, you're looking at tourism, you're looking at trade, you're looking at um, sort of commercial activity, you know, buying and selling in the markets and, and, and eating food at restaurants and so on. If you're trying to collect all of that data at the granular individual level in paper form in terms of, you know, tables and charts and forms that are being filled up, then you are really generating way, way too much information. And given the kind of technical capacity that existed in China at that time, uh, there is really no way to process this data. So what's happening is that there is an, a, a sense of being overwhelmed. And there's a phrase that uh, that, that I encountered in the archives where, where from internal reports where several people are bemoaning the fact that a lot of these tables are actually they're, they're useless at the moment of production themselves. So the moment a table is completed, it's actually virtually useless because we don't have the capacity to actually uh, make sense of, of it in terms of some you know larger uh, uh, um, 
comprehensive picture of uh, of the economy or of society and so on. Um, and then, as you pointed, this process gets further exacerbated because you have, in order to try and incentivize um, younger men and women to participate in statistical work, you are equating statistical work, which is essentially a white-collar service. Uh, it's not... Um, it's not something that produces a tangible good, whether it's steel, whether it's um, uh, wheat or rice uh, or any other kind of, you know, something physical that you can hold in your hand. Uh, there is a, a, a campaign that is mounted that actually tries to make this connection and say, well, the table is actually tangible. It's a tangible product that you're, uh, that you're producing. And some of this, again, goes back to deeper questions about how do you calculate economic production. And this is at a time in, in China in the 1950s actually all the way into the 1980s, where the system of national accounting doesn't include service work. It doesn't include work that is, um, um, you know, things like statistics, accounting, other kinds of office work uh, that, are, that, that should be part of economic production but are not included. So therefore, it's in a milieu where material production really is what is valued. Uh, so that then, as I said, creates a perverse incentive to further fuel the production of tables. So you, then you can see sort of this, this, real, this real craziness that, that by the mid-50s, a lot of Chinese statisticians recognize is, is absolutely untenable. Anyway, I'll stop there because you didn't want to spend more time on these two chapters. So, <laughs> No, that was great. Thank you. And I think actually you've set us up again beautifully for part three when, when you started talking about, you know, this untenable system. Mm-hmm. Um, because part three of the book, which you've titled Alternatives, um, looks at the different paths that Chinese statisticians reach for uh, in, the ni- in the late 1950s. You know, they're sort of uh, frustrated a little bit with the system that they have. There are problems in it. And by um, the late 1950s, they are seemingly able or willing to sort of recognize these problems. Um, so chapter seven looks at one of the uh, new paths that they you know, look towards. Um, and here you're looking at the interactions between China's State Statistics Bureau and the Indian Statistical Institute. And this is a, another really fascinating chapter, not just because of you know, the, these exchanges that you're you're looking at, I've never heard of them, uh, but because these exchanges really show how, at least for this very short period of time, you do see this willingness on the part of Chinese statisticians to be visibly and you know vocally unsure about their own statistical system. Um, and I'd say for a short period of time, because it does appear to be quite a narrow window in which these statisticians consider adopting or are willing to think about adopting the Indian methodology of large-scale random sampling. But even though it's a short period, you point out that these exchanges point to alternative frameworks for Cold War scientific exchanges. Um, This is a really important part of this chapter. Could you say a little bit about this? Why is this important? What is sort of new that you're sort of pointing to here? Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think what what is interesting here is that for a lot of, to a large extent, the way we understand the history of science in the Cold War, we still tend to accept the centrality of 
sort of the West, the liberal West, so you know, Western Europe and the United States, but really the United States is the leader. Uh, and then as one major node of dissemination of all kinds of science and technology. And then uh, uh, there's another major node, which is sort of centered in the Soviet Union, but more broadly, sort of the Warsaw Pact countries. A lot of Eastern European countries are, are very important too in this. So there are these two nodes, and they really are the centers of dissemination. And the rest of the world really is seen as uh, as a, a operating in a, in a largely recipient mode. And of course, this is, is, it is reductive to begin with, but it's a framing that has remained very powerful. Uh, and, and partly what I try and do with this chapter is to suggest that uh, in, while acknowledging that, yes, a lot, of, uh, a, a, a lot of actual science did operate within this sort of framework where there was a lot of dissemination from these two nodes, we tend to miss a, a range of other very important kinds of things that were happening in the worlds of science and technology that uh, that we wouldn't even discover because we would you know, our framing itself would preclude the discovery their discovery uh, and and the case of statistics is interesting because it's as far as I can tell the first uh, uh, major scientific exchange that the PRC state has with another country in the global south uh, and what's doubly interesting is that it's you know the 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 actual science that is being um, so the focus uh, of the exchange is something that's actually cutting edge at that time in the 1950s. So it's not some kind of second order or derivative science that, that is being shared by two countries that are outside, sort of in the periphery in some ways of, of the Cold War and global sort of global science. But it's actually uh, a, a cutting edge technology that is being that is being shared and, 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 and being discussed and debated. So in both those respects, I think uh, this becomes an important uh, expansion of the ways in which we think about uh, science in the Cold War, and I don't make this point explicitly, but uh, but I, I suspect as we start looking for, you know, other similar kinds of perhaps connections, we are going to discover many more, which speak to I think uh, which which will then force us to reconceptualize how we think about uh, global science in the 1950s and 1960s, questions of scientific dissemination. Uh, and also the, the questions of scientific innovation in some ways, where, where you know where is innovative science actually taking place? So in that sense, I think it's uh, the the case was both uh, when I discovered it surprising to me, uh, but also exciting because it it really points to um, a, a kind of blind spot that we've had, and one that I think we can now work towards remedying. Absolutely, and you said there that you know this is not second order science that. The, that is being exchanged, and these are not second-order people. I mean, you're talking this the the examples that you're using here, um, and drawing on these are some senior politicians and senior statisticians that are you know engaging with each other. Absolutely, these are very significant figures. And on the Chinese side, uh, Xue Muqiao, who uh, is the director of the Statistics Bureau at this time, a, a very important economist in the history of the People's Republic. He goes on to play a, a very important role post-78 uh, during reform and opening up during Gai Kaifeng. Uh, uh, is, uh, you know, is deeply involved in some of these in these discussions, debates, uh, and, and exchanges. Uh, his deputy, Wang Sehua, is another very important figure. Uh, but as you mentioned, politi politicians too. Zhou Enlai is, is, is absolutely central to these exchanges. Um, and and it's uh, to a large extent his enthusiasm for what he sees in India, and for what he realizes is is the potential transformative power of large scale random sampling uh, that I think helps spur these exchanges on. And then on the Indian side also, you have um, the the main figure who uh, who is 
uh, invested in these exchanges, uh, a physicist by the name of P.C. Malonobis. He's, again, a hugely important figure in the history of uh, 20th century statistics, both in terms of uh, uh, promoting the use of, uh, of random sampling, large-scale random sampling, but also in setting up uh, the institutional framework for essentially um, commensurable statistical data uh, that we all benefit from today, because he was deeply involved with the UN's Statistical Commission in the late 1940s and 1950s. So you have, you have people who are actually deeply embedded in um, uh, structures of power, but are also expert practitioners at what they do uh, involved in these, in these exchanges. Yeah. So here we have these, you know, as you just put it, um, these, you know, very expert people involved in cutting edge work, engaging um, with their Chinese counterparts who are also, you know, very senior, very high up and very interested in what is going on in India. But then things change. Um, The political winds in China change um, with the advent of the Great Leap Forward. And this brings us into chapter eight, the last part of the book. Um, And here you look at how statistics changed during this period and how the periodic reporting system was replaced by a new method of um, gathering statistics, gathering information, Mao's own ethnographic and localized system of collecting data. And this, you know, this had been around for a while, but here in 1958 and 59, we finally see it being embraced as the dominant uh, method for collecting um, information. And you open this chapter with a really interesting discussion of scholarship around Great Leap Forward statistics. And you point out that while most scholarship talks about how bad the statistics during the Great Leap Forward were, no one really moves beyond narratives of poor quality statistics, which I think really beautifully brings us back to the one of the key takeaways of the book, that how statistics are collected, the frameworks through which statistics are collected, what people are collecting data for, what they're measuring for, this really matters. Mm-hmm. So as a way of sort of uh, closing us here on this chapter, could you talk a little bit about this you know, movement away from narratives, as you say, collapse and poor quality? Because this is something that's really important for this chapter but it's also, as you you know, you say in the conclusion, transformative. I think, at least for how we think about statistics in China, not just in the 1950s, but beyond as well. Mm-hmm. I think uh, for me, what was striking when I was doing the research for this chapter was to actually discover how much resistance there was from the statistical establishment, the State Statistics Bureau, to the kinds of changes that were being imposed. So you have in 1958. Um, you know, a system that has been built up. So you, you know, it's it's more or less in place by by the mid 1950s. We we talked about this, um, the series of exchanges with Indian statisticians centered on large scale random sampling. But the the bulwark of the the entire statistical establishment remains this this remains exhaustive enumeration uh, through uh, what are known as periodical reports. You know, reports that are you data that's collected uh, with a certain degree of periodicity. Uh, and, and there is a certain degree of investment, there's a certain degree of capacity that has been built. And as we talked earlier, there is a particular theoretical understanding that undergirds why this is the best way to proceed uh, with collecting data. All of that's in place in, in, in uh, early 1958. And then you have um, essentially a, a, a movement that begins in Herbe, uh, centering around trying to reform statistics. It's very much anchored in um, 
a certain kind of greatly forward rhetoric about how we need to break free of the kinds of restraints that are holding us back. Um, you know, there's a, there's a you know, as as is part of the, the the rhetoric surrounding with greatly forward. There's a very sort of utopian attempt to break free, and this has to do with. Uh, with sort of um, very much about, uh, you know, uh, the, the fact that, uh, you know, human will can overcome all kinds of, uh, of obstacles, sort of voluntarism at its core, which is one of, one of uh, uh, the key theoretical ideas uh, in Maoism itself. Um, and, and that comes almost at 90 degrees then to the ways in which the Statistics Bureau approaches their statistical work. So what was interesting was to recognize how they, even though, these are all highly politicized moments. You have gone through a range of campaigns where you know you can be easily you can easily become a target for criticism, uh, and you can very quickly um, you know lose everything that you have in life. Uh, even in light of that, the Stats Bureau makes attempts to hold on to the kind of expertise, to hold on to the kind of capacity it has built. Uh, and that was really interesting to me. And again, it points to, I think, uh, the ways in which uh, we need to avoid sort of reductive uh, narratives of, oh, statistics just collapsed. It was actually a very interesting process of negotiation, but also essentially, again, a theoretical debate about what, what should statistics be. And the people who were, who were on, the, on, the, on the ethnographic side were essentially making the claim that this kind of large-scale exhaustive enumeration doesn't re really get you the kind of granular, detailed information that you need to understand what social reality is. And as you point out, this is indeed, this this kind of understanding had been there throughout throughout the 1950s. It had informed some statistical work before 1949 in Yan'an and, and areas uh, that, the, that the CCP controlled uh, in the 30s and 40s. But within sort of the, the political and ideological climate of the Great Leap Forward, this particular methodology, which uh, you know I, I've labeled ethnographic, gets labeled or, or, or has a certain kind of theoretical aura attached to it. Uh, and now it becomes sort of the Maoist mode of social uh, analysis. And, and these claims to uh, sort of expertise that have to rely on in the individual researcher being himself or herself physically present in the place that they are investigating. So to be in the village, to personally study what's going on with uh, agriculture, with social relations, with other kinds of production, that really is the true way to gain knowledge. And that, as you can imagine, is completely at contradistinction with, uh, with the exhaustive enumeration mode. Sets up, sets up a real sort of challenge. Uh, and, but given the climate, uh, what you see is a resistance from the State Statistics Bureau, but eventually they don't have a, you know, they are, they are sort of forced to make this adjustment. But what's interesting is that the adjustment happens over over uh, an eight or nine month period. It's not sort of uh, uh, the flipping of a switch in some ways. Um, and then, as I point out, this leads to uh, a, a major sort of uh, loss in the ability to come up with comprehensive data, because what you end up then doing is once you start relying on purely ethnographic modes, you go from a system that's highly structured uh, where the, the the lowest you know the, from the village level upwards, and by the late fifties you have of course communes uh, through the communes all the way up through provincial governments to Beijing. You have a structure that's uh, that's unified for reporting. All of that collapses, and the commune becomes sort of the atomized unit that reports data directly to Beijing.
and even within the commune you have you have you have you have sort of variations i guess uh, but what that means is that there is no way in which you can actually check some of the data that you're getting so all the problems that the exhaustive enumeration did have become way worse uh, with the system that replaces it because now you have essentially atomized units that are producing data and you have no ability to actually get a sense of well is this accurate or not and of course Beijing is making things work worse because it's setting targets that are actually fueling, um, uh, that are incentivizing misreporting itself. So that's again, that's that's a, I'm, I'm, it's a it's more complicated story, which I guess one has to read in the chapter. Uh, but 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 the Beijing is not helping either. The Beijing and the leadership under Mao is not helping either in in in, in uh, sort of addressing this problem. Absolutely, and you have a great line in the book, uh, something along you know about the state's inability to really check anything. They're really sort of, you know, cut off at the knees at this point um, in their, you know, they're generating this information. This information is being generated, but there's no way to check it. And mm-hmm. this is just sort of creating a feedback loop where targets are being set, more information is being generated, but again, there's no way to check anything. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. Something that you said uh, when you were talking about this chapter that I thought was really interesting was how when you went into this period, looking at this period, you were interested to, you know, you didn't think there was going to be any pushback or you weren't expecting it at least. And I think what is so great about your book then is when we get to this part, I at least expected there to be pushback because what you've shown through the book is sort of, you know, in um, earlier chapters that statisticians have gone through this process of consensus formation. They do have this sort of ideological foundation for the statistics they're using. They're very much invested in this system by this, by, at this point. So it is a struggle then to sort of, it's not, as you say, switch, uh, flip a switch. There is sort of, they are deeply invested, and this is a real um, statistics shift. It's a real shift for them um, to get on board with this now, what is a new system. It's again, uh, a struggle because, and you know, I was able to see the struggle because you've so beautifully documented it up until this point. I think, you know, I think you're absolutely right that it's, it's recognizing that this is a process. It's, it's a way in which a certain kind of consensus does form over the 1950s. And in some ways it's a story also of, of, of a certain kind of, um, serious engagement a sort of very professional engagement with statistics which again you know going back to uh, some of the some of the discussion we had uh, at the start of our conversation uh, when we think about statistics in the 1950s we tend to dismiss it outright because it's oh it's all of course overtly ideological and overtly politicized and i think that's not entirely incorrect i mean but but statistics are always political i guess is the point to make so the question becomes how precisely are they political and then how do actors and not just in china but anywhere in the world how do they operate given the particular sort of political milieu and political climate and what i think uh, the story across the 1950s and which is why i think it's so important to connect the early 50s with the the great leap forward is to precisely show the ways in which a certain kind of professional identity a certain kind of expert opinion about statistics had formed and that there was a, there was sort of a whole process through which these debates took place uh, and we can't just dismiss them as sort of ideology run amok or something like that absolutely so now that you have sort of you know uh, shifted shifted you know so beautifully away from ideolo- ideology run amok here um, through this book what I mean, we're coming to the end of our conversation here. So now that you're finished with this work, and you know, 
I thoroughly enjoyed it, particularly chapter six. I'm going to continue plugging chapter six until the end of time. Um, But it does so much work in terms of rethinking this period, rethinking 1949 as a breaking point, rethinking a singular definition or understanding of statistics, rethinking science. It is doing so, so, so much work. But now that you are finished with it, what are you working on next? What is inspiring you now? Uh, so, so there's a there's a, a couple of projects I'm working on next, and unfortunately, given the larger geopolitical climate we are in, there's a lot of uncertainty, I guess, and this is true for all of us. And I mean, I'm I'm particularly empathetic uh, uh, for you know as far as grad students are concerned, who are clearly worried about what what it'll mean for dissertation research. Uh, but you know, so you know, we're unsure about access to archives in China. We're even unsure at this point about access to actually China itself. To colleagues in China, um, colleagues and friends in China, uh, but so I'm I'm balancing two projects uh, with, with you know and trying to re- constantly recalibrate them based based on these sort of larger geopolitical realities. The first one and 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 the one that's uh, taking up most of my time right now is is to work on a on a history of uh, dam building in the 20th century in China, uh, and the focus I really want to take is is uh, again. Hopefully, what will what will appear to be interesting and counterintuitive for a lot of people, uh, you know, when we think about dam building, we're immediately sort of drawn to uh, the Three Gorges Dam, and there are other sort of earlier instances, uh, Salman Shia, Gajoba, and so on, um, from from earlier periods uh, in Chinese history that that really have to do with the the gargantuan scale uh, of these projects, right? So the the Three Gorges is now, of course, the largest dam by um, uh, measure if you measure measure it by um, capacity. Uh, of, of, of electricity generation, uh, so there's. I think we and, and then of course the you know the ecological, the social, the the economic consequences, uh, some positive, many negative of of these very large projects. That seems to be the the thing that that draws our attention immediately. What I'm hoping to focus on instead, actually, is the history of small scale dam building during this period. Uh, and as I'm discovering, uh, this I think is uh, just as significant a part of the story. And if you know to quantify it in very simple terms, China today has about 90,000 dams. Most of these have been built in the last 70 or 80 years, and they are, uh, depending on which metric you look at, they are as much as 50% of global dam construction during this time. And most of them are actually small-scale dams. So how do we then understand the relationship between this much this smaller scale dam building in light of uh, what captures our imagination immediately, which is the the scale of, uh, of of three gorges and so on? So it's trying to understand that in light of a range of issues from technology and and labor and, and ecology um, to uh, to to sort of uh, economy and, and and energy history and so on. Uh, and as part of that, what I'm working on right now is is a paper slash chapter on the 1950s and trying to understand uh, the scale at which this was promoted um, and 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 how you know where small scale dam building took place and how was it explained and understood in light of the fact that today small scale uh, it's called small hydro the contemporary term is small hydro is actually a well recognized um, area of of activity and research where China is the leader actually. So the major small hydro research center is in Hangzhou in China today. So it's partly, I think, to then think also about these ideas of development, economic development, but also sustainable development that are well recognized today and try and see what the roots of the, the what some of the roots might be in earlier periods. Um, so that's one one project. 
The other one that's uh, slightly more diffuse, uh, and it's partly inspired by the the uh, exchanges between the Chinese and Indian statisticians that I write about in making it count, is to try and map other kinds of networks and other kinds of exchanges between Chinese and Indian scientists through the 20th century. Uh, focusing again on very different, the, the cases I've collected focus on very different kinds of sciences from something like mathematics, which is very disciplinary, to something like biogas production, which is actually applied technology. Uh, and I'm sort of trying to collect these as different case studies to, you know, see what we can say about global histories of science that are different from uh, from more received histories. So those sort of two projects that I've, I'm working on entirely contingent on, uh, or entirely at the mercy of, I guess, our uh, our geopol geopolitical fortunes. Fascinating. They both sound like very, um, very interesting projects. The second one, I can very much see an extension from this book um, in particular, but I mean, for your work and everyone's work, I very much hope that the geopolitical situation um, settles itself uh, at some point or you know, sooner rather than later. Yeah, um, yeah. But, you know, yeah, best of luck with those projects. Um, and thank, thank you. you so much again for coming on the, the podcast to talk about um, this project. No, thank you so much for ha having me.